Well, as Matt said earlier in the service, Happy New Year. It sounds awkward, right? Now, the reality is for centuries and centuries and centuries, for the Christian church, the new year begins not on January 1, but as he indicated on the first Sunday of Advent, which is today, and one of our goals on this first Sunday of Advent is to orient you to this new tool that you found in your chair today. So if you would turn with me as we continue in our worship now by coming to the Word of the Lord to receive His wisdom to page 5, I want to show you what Ryan showed those of you who were here at the beginning which is that we have a sermon notes page here for you. So if you are like a note taker, we had you in mind. And even if you aren't a note taker, but you think, you know what, I think I'm going to jot something down, this is the spot for you to memorialize it. And we did that in honor of the fact that, you know, we believe that what we do when we come together as God's people, as those filled with His Spirit, as those who gather in His presence, and then open His supernatural Word is a supernatural thing. So the Word of God itself tells us that it is living and that it is active and that one of the primary, the primary way that God speaks to us today is by His Spirit and through His Word and in moments like this. And so if you're ready for it and you're listening, then maybe He'll say something to you. And if He does, you've got a spot now that you can write it down. So as we begin our new year together, we begin also a new study for the year. And unlike the previous five or six years, we're not going to be contained all in one book. So we're going to begin at the very beginning of the Bible and look at the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Genesis. Then we're going to fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible and look at about the last chapter and a half of the book of Revelation. And then having done that, we're going to look at the books of First and Second Corinthians today. And we're calling the whole of this study, the entire year, living in the rhythm of grace. And if you are new to us, and maybe you walked in a few minutes late and you missed it, you're probably thinking, all right, well, what is the rhythm of grace? And if you've been here for a while, you're thinking, what does it mean to live in it? And I want to answer both questions on the front end and then move into our study together. The rhythm of grace, simply put, is the pattern of the gospel. We've just attached language to its various expressions. That's it. And so then we here at Rio, in our corporate worship and in our personal worship throughout the week that prepares us for our corporate worship, for what we're doing now, remember God. And here's what that means. It does not mean that we remember merely that God exists. It means that we remember who He is and what He's like, we stop and consciously process the reality of the living God. And then we're honest with Him about ourselves. Why? Because in the light of who God is, we see ourselves for who we really are. And we see all the things that we've done that stand, relationally speaking, between us and Him. And we see as well, and this is really important, that there's not a thing in the world that we can do about those things that stand between us and Him. We recognize not only, to put it more plainly, that we're sinful people, okay, but we recognize that there's not a thing in the world we can do to change that, to undo that, to wipe that away. And so we come to the very God that we've offended and we say, ah, you know, I got nothing here. And then He comes to us with Christ. He Himself has solved the problem in Jesus. And so having remembered Him, having been honest with Him about myself, then I come, you come to Him, and we rest in His grace, the grace that God Himself purchased through the life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a pattern to be remembered, by the way, this morning, through which we become children of God. But then we recognize that that's who we are. God is the creator. Guess what? We're the creatures. God is the father. We're the sons and daughters. God is the master. We're the servants. God is the king. We're the subjects. 
And we come to the Lord then, and we open His Word, as we're doing right now, and we say, Lord, you know what? Having seen myself for who I really am, and now who I am in Christ, and all that you've done for me, recognizing that I now belong to you, that my life is not my own. I am owned by you, for you've purchased me with the blood of Jesus. I want to openly confess that I need to be saved not just from my sin, I need to be saved from myself. Because left to myself, I make a mess. Because left to myself, I am a mess. So speak, Lord, for your servant listens. We receive his wisdom, and it's a wisdom from another world, as I've said several times, that works in this world. And here's why, because as we'll see today, he's the author of both. And then having received his wisdom in community with one another by the power of God's Spirit, we go forth to do what he says. So that's the rhythm of grace. And here's what it means to live in the rhythm of grace. It means to so regularly engage in that rhythm through personal worship and through corporate worship that it becomes ingrained in us, that it becomes instinctive in us, that it becomes the operating system, if you will, by which we then live. And let me illustrate it. So then, for example, you have a career decision that you need to make. You stop because you're so involved in this rhythm. You're spinning day by day in and through it instinctively, you get to the point where instinctively you just stop and say, well, well, wait a minute, i got to remember God in this. And not just that He exists, but who He is and who I am relative to Him. And I need to remember that, wait a minute, this isn't my decision, it's His. Now that's a change, isn't it? And I need to be honest with Him about myself. And I, I need to tell Him that, you know, I've got a little bit of my ego involved in this deal. And it feels kind of good that they want to give me this promotion. And Maybe I'm sort of manufacturing my own self-worth and I've got some of that attached to this. There's some things that God, you and I need to talk about that I can see in the light of who you are and your plans and your purposes and what you're up to. And then I need to rest in the assurance of who I am in Jesus Christ and in the fact that my identity comes not through what I achieve and accomplish, not through all the applause of everybody that goes, wow, you got a great promotion, even though it's cool. But my identity comes from you and in who I am in you. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. What is your will in this matter? What do you, my Father, what do you, my Creator, what do you, my Owner, what do you, my Master, what do you, my King, want me to do? And now by the power of God's Spirit, in community with my brothers and sisters who will help me, I'm going to try to do that. Let's say that you have an argument with your husband and wife. I know that probably that never happens to you, but... Let's just step into the world of the hypothetical for a second. If this rhythm is so ingrained in you at some point, you almost intuitively can get to the point where by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what it takes, incidentally, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's the last one? Anybody know? Self-control. Yeah, that's not the fruit of Tom. Certainly not in an argument. But by the power of the Spirit, you stop and you say, okay, wait, God, who are you? Let me be honest with you about myself in this. Let me remember that you have forgiven me much. Your grace overflows undeservingly into my life through Jesus. Okay, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. I'm ready to hear. Now, by the power of your Spirit, I'm going to go do what you've said. You're facing a crisis in life, any kind. How do you process it? Remember God. Be honest with Him about yourself and all of your fears and insecurities and all of it, bitterness, resentment. It's all there. Rest in His grace. Receive His wisdom. Do what He says. 
day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. That's living in the rhythm of grace. And so the rhythm of grace is simply the pattern of the gospel, and living in it simply means engaging in it so frequently that it becomes natural to you. It becomes the operating system by which you live. That's what we're after. We believe that the gospel doesn't just save, it shapes, it forms, it delivers progressively in terms of our sanctification. So today we're going to be in this study that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And as I said, we're going to start where the Bible starts, first few chapters of Genesis. Then we're going to go to the end where the Bible ends, the last few chapters of Revelation. And here's why we're starting this way, because those portions of the Bible come together and hold before us emphatically who God is and emphatically who we are in relation to Him, where it all went wrong and why we are who and what we are natively. It holds before us emphatically, even before the fall, as we'll see, the gospel, the grace of God to us in Christ. And it gives us a wisdom for living in this world by which we can live in this world for the world that really matters, for the world that is yet coming. And it gives us even a picture of that world. And it gives us all of this information, not merely as suggestions or, you know, good advice. Here's some good advice for living. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't give us good advice for living. It gives us this as a glorious mandate by which you and I, together in community, by the power of the Spirit, can live lives that in this world and for all of the next actually matter, which is kind of a cool thought. So we begin our study today in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, right there where the Bible begins, where Moses says this. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, and listen, I know that you have a lot of questions about exactly when that happened, so let me now answer that. And he doesn't say, oh, and I know you have a lot of questions about how, in a scientific, you know, sort of a physical, chemical, biological processes kind of a way, that all came about, so let me now answer that. And he doesn't say, you know what, I know that I'm about to lay this out, and I'm going to tell you that God did this in the space of six days, but there's going to be some conversation down the road about what does a day mean, so let me now answer that. I'm not saying that those are not important conversations. I'm just telling you that they're not germane to the primary purpose and point of the story. This is not God's attempt to put on his white lab coat and answer all of our intellectual curiosities about the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is a story that is written to your heart, not just your mind, and to address the deepest needs and longings of your heart from the very first line of Scripture. God here is preaching the gospel to us, and the right question to ask of this story is not when, it's not how, it's not how long. The right question is why. Why, Lord, did you create the heavens and the earth in the first place? And the answer that comes emanating out of the whole of the Bible is simply this, that in the beginning, and God created the heavens and the earth to show forth His glory, to reveal, to manifest Himself to the beings of heaven and to the beings of earth. Now, don't miss this part. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is going to show us His glory through His gospel, through the rhythm of grace. So then again, we read, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we'll see, he doesn't do it all at once. He doesn't say, and let it all be, and then it was. No, far from it. Notice what he does do. He creates a mess. 
Keep reading. It says, the earth that God originally created was without form, which is to say that it was in a state of utter chaos. And more than that, it was void or completely empty. And more than that, darkness, we read, and therefore death, because life presupposes the existence of light. Darkness was over the face of the deep, the deep waters that covered and completely enveloped this dark, dead, chaotic, empty mess of a world. God starts by creating a dark, dead, chaotic, empty mess. And then, as we'll see in a second, day by day, step by step, what does he do? He introduces light into the darkness. He orders in the first three days that which is chaotic. And in the second set of three days, days four, five, and six, he fills that which is empty. Why? Because the question isn't when. The question isn't how, outside of by the power of his word. The question isn't how long even is a day. Why did God do this? And why did he start with a mess? He started with a mess because he wants to preach the gospel to me and to you from the first words of the Bible. He started with a mess because he knew that a day was coming. And I'll just personalize this for me and for you. When that dark, dead, empty mess of an originally created world that he will now transform would be a perfect picture of my heart and yours apart from Jesus. It's who we are. Apart from the creative work of God, we are, all of us, a dark, dead, chaotic, empty mess. And so from the first pages of the Bible, God is coming to us and He's saying, look, if you're looking for one who can shine light into your darkness, indeed bring light out of it, look no more. Okay, if you're looking for one who can take that which has died in you, that which is dead in you, and bring life out of it, I'm your guy. If you're looking for one who can take the chaos that is you, the unending chaos that is you, and bring form and order and structure to it, I'm that God. And let me save you some time on the whole emptiness thing. I'm the only one who can fill you. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. And for the record, I'm not the only one who uh, interprets the creation story this way. Just fast forward with me to the New Testament for a second and listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Second Corinthians 4, 6, for example. He describes our salvation experience, and he's right here, incidentally, in this part of the narrative of the creation story. He's assuming dark, dead, chaotic, empty heart. Dark, dead, chaotic, empty world. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's what's coming next in the creation story is my point. Has shown into our otherwise, the idea is, dark, dead, chaotic, empty hearts. He's drawing a direct analogy between that first world and our hearts to give us the what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then you turn over one chapter. 2 Corinthians 5.17, famous passage. What does he say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is a believer in Jesus, he's saying, he is a, here it is, new creation. The old, meaning the old darkness, the old death, the old chaos. The old emptiness. He's drawing on this creation story. Where is it now? It has passed away, and behold, the new has come, and it's come out of that which is old. He doesn't trash the originally created world and then go, you know what, so let it be, and then it was all done all at one time. No, no, He delivers it progressively to show us the wisdom of the Lord and how it is that He delivers us. It's magnificent. So then in order to teach us all of these things, God creates this mess that looks like us. 
And then we read second part of verse 2. It says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the dark, dead, chaotic, empty waters of this originally created world that looks just like my heart and yours apart from faith in Jesus. And so now what does God do? Day one, step one. We read, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. In the darkness, he called night. And in doing so, what is he doing? He's ordering, he's separating, he's classifying, he's naming, he's dividing. He's ridding the world of chaos. He's introducing form. And then we read, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so then on the first day, God creates light. But what does he not create? Did you notice? He doesn't create the sun, moon, and stars. That comes on day four, by the way. We'll get there. But think about that for a minute. Why in the world does God create light, but not the instruments of light that you and I are so familiar with? Because he's teaching us about himself. And he's saying, listen, I am the source of light. And all of these things that he will create on day four that fill our skies day and night are merely emblems or images of me. They're meant to teach you things about me. Well, like what things? Well, consider the sun for a second. Just think about it. What in your experience is like the sun? Because I'm going to go with nothing. Like, are there three suns? Are there five? Are there nine? Or is there just one? Who is like the sun? What is like the sun in all of our experience? Absolutely not a thing. And what does the sun do every day of my life and yours? It races across the sky, does it not? And what is it doing as it races across the sky? It is illuminating all of our activities. It is dispelling all of our darkness. It is freeing us from all of the perils that would otherwise be ours apart from light. And it's even interacting organically with our bodies and with plant life all over the place. It's bringing life. And at the end of every day, as God has designed us as creatures standing on this planet to experience and to witness this, we watch the sun which is raced across the sky bringing light and life and to whom and to which nothing can be compared short of Christ. We watch it sink down into the horizon. Here's what it looks like as its light goes out, as its warmth dissipates. And darkness and coolness then fills the land. It's life, it's death, it's burial, and then we all panic. And we think to ourselves, oh, good grief, there goes the sun. We'll never see it again. What are we going to do now? Clearly, everything's going to die. No, we don't panic. Because as God has designed it, every 24-hour cycle, we are taught life Death, burial, and then what? Because even the weatherman uses the appropriate language. The sun rises in the morning. Who or what is that? That is an emblem of exactly one person, the God-man who is Jesus. Listen, the creative order, the created order, guys, is designed to teach you the gospel. In the Word of God, and as we experience it. And then, of course, we read in verse 6, Day two, it says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, meaning the waters below that was covering the whole of this originally created mess of a world that God has introduced light into. And he's now beginning to order by separating, dividing, classifying. What is he doing? He's creating a a sky and an atmosphere. 
He's dividing the waters below, which covered the lands, if you will, from the waters above, which float around in clouds. Have you ever thought about that? Think about that for a minute. What is the weight, do you think, of a rain cloud? Can you imagine the weight of a rain cloud? It's got to be massively heavy. And water from rain clouds that are unbelievably heavy fall every day all over the world, thousands, if not tens of thousands of feet. And yet they do not completely obliterate everything beneath them. Why? Because God has designed them in wisdom to show forth his goodness. He's made, them, he's made water asymmetrical. So here's what happens. It has three axes. As it begins to fall out of the sky in this mass, it begins to spin. And as it spins faster and faster and faster and faster, it fractures off into millions and billions of little tiny drops of water that far from obliterating everything beneath that water bring life. They give drink to the thirsty soil, to the plants that sustain us. It's astounding. It's amazing. And so we come together in church and, you know, and we sing songs that come from little passages of Scripture in the Bible and we ask the Lord to rain down upon us We don't ask Him to fall upon us in one big mass in His wrath, do we? We can ask Him by faith in Jesus to rain His Spirit down upon our thirsty souls. And why? Because He fell in total on Christ on the cross. It's an amazing, incredible illustration of God's grace, of His mercy. And so then we continue and read that God made the expanse and He separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and in doing so, brought further order by classifying, dividing, structuring, framing things out. And now we come to the third day in verse 9, a very significant day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land, not the muddy land... Dry land comes up out of the water. You're like, man, that's crazy. How did he do that? You know, he's God. Dry land, fertile land. Land ready for seed is the idea. And now look for the word seed. It's pretty evidently there. And by means of its repetition, it's like Moses is going, hey, don't miss the idea of the seed here. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding what? Seed. And fruit trees bearing fruit in which is there, here it is again, seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding, here it is again, seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is there what? In case you missed it, seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And so then on the third day, God who created all things to show forth His glory to the beings of heaven and to the beings of earth through the instrumentality of the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son, brings forth life from the earth, okay, on the third day. The same day that Jesus, who in chapter 3 of this book of Genesis, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks, is referred specifically to as the seed of the woman, 
came forth from the tomb. He came forth from the tomb, alive from the dead. Get the idea? Forth from the earth in some sense on the morning of the third day. And God brings forth this organic life on the third day as organic life that produces seed. Now, how does seed work? Okay, here's the deal. It doesn't work until it's first cut off from its life source and dies and then is buried. But after it suffers death and burial, what does a seed do? I don't know how this happens, but it comes to life. And then it comes forth from the ground and it brings forth fruit that sustains many. Think about that. Think about the apple tree for a minute. You can do this with any fruit tree, but just, I'm just going with apples, okay? I dig apples. That's it. God did not create in the apple tree a tree that only produces two or three apples a year. Ah, oh, two or three apples, like one of you can eat that this week. That's it. He produced apple trees that produce thousands of apples a year. Everybody can have one. Oh my goodness, I'm sick of eating apples. There's so many. It's magnificent. The abundance contained in a seed. Think about grain for a minute. Wheat. God didn't create wheat that, you know, creates these husks of wheat in which there are two or three kernels of wheat. Hundreds of kernels. I was listening to NPR, which I never do, so I don't know why this happened to me. But a few years ago, I was listening to NPR, and they were talking about wheat production, which doesn't even interest me, I'm not going to lie. I think it's boring, but it drew me in. And they were talking about the wheat production capabilities of the state of Kansas, and this is the claim that they made on NPR. They said that the wheat production of the state of Kansas is so massive that the state of Kansas annually, so every year, produces enough wheat to give one loaf of bread to every person on planet Earth. One state. Talk about abundance. So it's no wonder then when Jesus is trying to describe himself to us that he lays hold of this idea of of seeds that suffer, that die, that are buried, and that come forth bringing life to everybody. There's more than enough. That's the idea. There's abundant life in them. It's no wonder that he lays hold of that kind of an image. And he says, for example, in John 12, beginning in verse 23, speaking of his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, which is imminent, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now let me tell you how I'm going to be glorified. Let me describe it for you figuratively and in a way that you can understand. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it comes forth from the ground, in Jesus' case, on the third day, and bears what? Much fruit. Guys, God created all things to show forth His glory to the beings of heaven and to the beings of earth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is to say, through the gospel, through the rhythm of grace as we would coin it here, by which He takes dark, dead, empty, chaotic, messy people like me and like you. And He doesn't just forgive us He forgives us and then transforms us. Light in the darkness, order in the chaos, filling that which is empty, life out of death. You see how that works? It's remarkable. And he makes us less 
and less and less as we get into this rhythm of grace and learn to follow Him day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. He makes us less and less dark and dead and crazy and, and empty and more and more and more like Jesus. And so then to teach us that, as opposed to answering all of our scientific questions, He creates a world that's a mess. And then, in the first three days, he introduces light and life, organic life, and he orders that which is crazy. And then in the second set of three days, days four, five, and six, he fills that which is empty. And again, on day four, what does he fill, light, fill the world with? The heavens. He fills the heavens now with the instruments of light. Again, not as the source of light. He's taught us that he alone is the source of light, but as emblems of him. As things that hold forth his glory. Consider the stars. We've talked about the sun. Think about the stars for a minute. And think about you and your own size relative, not just to the stars, but to the universe that contains every single one of the stars. Back in 1977, the United States sent out a spacecraft called Voyager. And they sent it out for the purpose of photographing the various planets, not in the universe, no, 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 just in our solar system. So keep that in mind. By 1990, it got to the outer reaches of our solar system. And before it passed out of the solar system, they commanded it to turn toward Earth and to take one last picture of Earth. I want to show you where you live. You're a tiny little speck on a tiny little speck. Let's see it. Can you see Earth? I bet you couldn't see it but for the arrow. It's a famous picture. It's called the pale blue dot. Carl Sagan coined that that phrase. Now, mind you, Earth is contained in our solar system, and our solar system is contained within the Milky Way. And the size of our solar system relative to the size of the Milky Way, are you ready? It's good that you're seated, is about the same as comparing the size of a quarter, one quarter to the entire landmass of North America. I regularly lose quarters in my car. Think about that. Okay, now think about the fact that as you pass out of our galaxy, like I don't know if your mind is big enough yet to even figure that out, you move out into the universe and you encounter hundreds of millions of galaxies. Hundreds of millions. So you go out, you see the barred spiral galaxy as an example. That's one of them out there. Maybe you see the Sombrero Galaxy. I mean, if I was traveling the galaxy, that would be one I'd want to see. You travel out, you see this thing now. I just saw this the other day, this week. It's called a rose. We see that? And it's made of a series of galaxies. Go to the Hubble website. You'll see these. And then my personal favorite is the next one. It is the Whirlpool Galaxy. I love that. And that what you see in the tail there on the end is a companion galaxy. So I think technically this is called the Whirlpool and its companion. But let me tell you why it's my favorite. It's not because I think it's the coolest looking, though I think it's up there. Like it's up there for super cool. And it's not because I dig Whirlpool, though we do have that as a washer at our house. But it's because with the Hubble telescope... They zoomed in on the dead center, the core of the Whirlpool galaxy, and they took a picture of this, and I want to show this to you. That's what they saw. 
All right, I'm not making this up. Go check it out. They call that the X core to the Whirlpool galaxy. I call that a cross. Guys, God created the heavens and the earth to show forth His glory to the beings of heaven and to the beings of earth through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through His gospel, through His redemptive work, through His rhythm of grace. And good grief did He create an enormous universe to help Him do that, which is what it's all for. Have you ever thought about the size of the universe? I mean, certainly we don't need the extra space. Why is it so big? Because herein lies its purpose. Psalm 19, verse 1. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So I'm thinking His glory is pretty big. And I'm thinking He's pretty big. And I don't know about you, but right about now, I'm feeling pretty small. But also, according to God's design, that should not discourage you. In fact, far from the size of the universe speaking to our own lack of importance, the size of this universe, the greater and greater and larger we discover that it is, actually speaks to our increased value. And why is that? Because by God's design and creation, let me just ask you, Are the things that are plentiful most valuable, or are those things that are really, really rare most valuable? Answers itself. It's gold, not dirt, that's valuable. It's diamonds, not your common rock that's all over the place, that's valuable. It's people, not galaxies, that are valuable. In fact, I think I can state with great confidence that you alone are more valuable than every galaxy that's out there, no matter how many there are, all added together. And here's why, because our Almighty God never became a galaxy, but He did become a person in the person of Jesus Christ, and He became a person in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue, to redeem, and through His rhythm of grace to transform you. Something to think about. So on the fourth day, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. He fills the heavens with the luminaries. It corresponds to the first day in which he said, let there be light. On the fifth day, he fills the sea with fish and the sky with air. corresponds to the second day in which he divided the waters below from the heavens above. It's brilliant. It's poetic. He's a poet. It's beautiful. On the sixth day, God fills the dry land that, incidentally, He created on the third day. Do you see how these all correspond? He fills them with animals, and He fills them with man, and we'll pick up with that next week. But until then, please know this, that Almighty God created everything to show forth His glory, and just take this and make it personal to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through His gospel, through His rhythm of grace, by which He takes dark, dead, chaotic, empty, messy people like all of us, and He doesn't just forgive us. He then shapes us. He then molds us. He then progressively delivers us from our darkness, from those things that have died. He progressively orders our otherwise chaotic, crazy lives. And again and again and again, He fills us, making us less like the people we once were and more 
and more and more like Jesus. But he doesn't do that if we never do personal worship and we never come to church and we don't get in his word and we don't engage with him through the means by which, by his spirit, he molds and shapes us, which we've kind of taken and said is this thing called the rhythm of grace, that we want you to practice personally, day by day, weekly, here together as Christ's body, until it becomes, it just spins you off into the rest of life. And it becomes the operating system by which you then analyze and operate and decide and move and act and so forth. For through that, the Lord will shape you. So my challenges are one, come to faith in Jesus if you don't know him. He's calling to you from the stars and from his word. And take up this tool that we've created, which contains even your personal worship for the rest of the week, for this coming week, and begin to learn, little by little, how to live in the rhythm of grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your glory, which exceeds our capacities to understand. But Lord, we do thank you for the glory that you have, in fact, revealed to us and that our minds indeed by the operation of your spirit are capable of understanding. We thank you for the glory that we see in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, these emblems that speak of you. We thank you that we live in a day in which we have technology to take pictures like that. Pictures that have been waiting to be taken for we don't know how many years. But suspect you were happy when it finally was caught on camera. We thank you for the glory that we see in the face of your son, Jesus. The one who is God made man entered into this planet to live the perfect life we have not, and then to lay down his infinitely valuable, infinitely righteous life as a sacrifice to take away everything that stands between us and you, to bring us into your family, to make us your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would call us to receive that forgiveness, to take our place at the table of your family, And then give us the humility to confess that not only do we need your forgiveness, we need your wisdom. Grant it freely, we pray, and give us the power by which to live it out. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.